Well, I want to thank you again, Church, for your flexibility in meeting this way uh, for uh, our Sunday worship on the 16th of January, which is the second Sunday of Epiphany. And this morning, actually, we're going to be in a, a relatively familiar text, perhaps, with uh, that you may have heard before, a story of Jesus' first miracle, actually, the turning of, of water to wine at the wedding in Cana, and to get us grounded in thinking about uh, perhaps what God might want to say to our church in these days uh, from this passage. Let me read it for us, and we'll get going. The Word of God, um, or hear the Word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. A couple of weeks ago, I was scrolling through Twitter and I came across this thread of tweets which caught my attention. Uh, somebody had requested that pastors post their, their most memorable gaffes of when they were a part of a wedding ceremony that went awry. And fortunately, I am so paranoid when it comes to weddings that I didn't have anything to share. And the responses that many of the pastors had uh, at that request reminded me of why it's so important to be prepared for a wedding. Let me share just a few of these with you. One pastor shared, he said, the first wedding years ago I performed had everyone stand as the bride entered, forgot to sit them down. They stood the whole wedding. My senior pastor tried to signal me to seat them. I thought he was encouraging me to this day, 30 years later, I have please be seated printed at the top. Another pastor wrote, Officiating for the first time, the couple asked me to read their homemade vows on their behalf. I stupidly agreed. Among other things, I had to look the groom straight in the face and say, I never thought I could love another man ever again. <laughs> And this last one, you have to understand a little bit of the Roman Catholic Church and the way that they practice communion. One thing is that when they serve communion, they actually serve wine, not grape juice. But one of the other things you may not know is that uh, they do not dump out consecrated uh, communion drink, if you will. They pray over the wine, and then the priest actually has to consume all of the wine that the congregation uh, did not consume. 
And so with that background in mind, hear this. This guy wrote, my dad and I were filming this one, but the parents of the bride wanted a Catholic wedding with Eucharist. The only four that took were the bride and groom and parents. The priest had to down the remaining elements that had been prepared for 500 guests. He was a bit buzzed. Now, if you have or if something in there struck you as a, as a wedding memory or a, a wedding ceremony or reception memory that you think would be appropriate and humorous to share, I encourage you to write it down in the comments. We'd love to read those and I'd love to read them after uh, this sermon this morning. But our passage this morning finds Jesus in the middle of a real wedding gaffe in the first century. You see, unlike in our culture where the couple goes on to celebrate their, their new marriage, uh, their newly married status on a honeymoon for a, you know, a week or so long, back in the first century in Jesus's culture, you actually would celebrate, the newlyweds would celebrate with their community with a week-long honeymoon, if you will, or reception within the village or town. It was a communal event, not just for the bride and the groom. This was often the, the celebration was often put on by the bride's family. And it's likely that in this particular story in the first century that, that weddings were such a big deal that the entire village has gathered to celebrate this wedding and this newly consecrated marriage. In fact, it's likely that not just the village in which it took place here in Cana, but the surrounding villages as well were invited to come celebrate. Weddings were a really, really big deal. Where in our culture, we are trying to limit for the sake of cost how many people are coming to the wedding. In the first century, it was invite everybody and their grandmother to be there. Now, imagine uh, some of us have been to weddings where there's an open bar, perhaps for a few hours. But for a moment, I want you to just imagine what it would be like at some of the weddings that you have been to, if you told all of the invited guests that there was going to be an open bar for the next seven days, right? I imagine some of you are sitting there thinking the bar wouldn't last more than maybe a few hours, let alone a couple of days, let alone a week long. But running out of wine in the first century at a wedding wasn't just an inconvenience or something that was, you know, not supposed to happen, the, the sort of bad story that that you would tell years afterwards. Running out of wine would have been a social disaster. It would have been incredibly shameful to not be able to celebrate the allotted amount of time at your wedding ceremony. The family would have to live with that shame in their village and in the surrounding villages for years and years and years to come. In fact, there is some ancient writings that suggest to run out of wine and not to be able to celebrate fully would have been an omen or a sign that, that this wedding is not going to go well. And it's on, it's on the precipice of this, this social gaffe at this wedding that Jesus' mother calls him to come and do something about it. Come prevent the disaster that's about to befall this couple and their family. But the question for us this morning Sure, that you know, could understand why 
the family and the couple would want Jesus to perform a miracle. Maybe you kind of understand Jesus' mother Mary wanting Jesus to perform a miracle out of a sense of empathy with this couple. But why, why does Jesus perform the miracle at all? You know, why, why would Jesus' first miracle be some impromptu, you know, uh, uh, last-minute, unplanned event that not a lot of time went into thinking about? Like, if he's going to launch his ministry, and this miracle is going to be the inaugural event of Jesus' ministry in the world, wouldn't it have been much better if Jesus would have thought about some extravagant miracle that would take place where a lot of people were going to see it, perhaps in Jerusalem or another metropolis-like area. But why perform your first miracle at some anonymous people's weddings who, who seemingly weren't important enough to even make it into the Bible? They're unnamed, this bride and groom. And why, why this particular miracle? Miracles are supposed to prevent something bad from happening or or to try to reverse something bad that has already happened. Giving giving sight to a blind person or or making well somebody who's sick, bringing somebody back from the dead. Like Those are the types of things that you should be doing for miracles. But here, Jesus is just maintaining the celebratory buzz that all of the wedding guests have in Cana of Galilee. He prevents nothing, but just keeps the party going. Why does Jesus perform this miracle? In the scriptures, we have to understand what weddings represented. If we're going to understand what it is that Jesus does here in his first miracle, you see, in the Bible, the, the wedding feast was, was a foretaste uh, for the first century Jew of that great heavenly feast that God's people were going to experience when God made his dwelling with them and they dwelled with him. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he's going to be using the imagery of wedding banquets and wedding guests and wedding attire and brides and bridegrooms to describe this thing that we call the kingdom of God, that, that place where God's people dwell with God rightly. And the language of wedding celebration was used to to give a picture of of the joyous celebration that that would be when God made his dwelling with man and man with God. It would be like the celebratory joy that you experience at a wedding. I remember Paige and I's wedding uh, just over six years ago. It was, and I'm not biased at all, the best wedding that I have ever been to. Uh, there was so much fun that happened that evening. Just the smiles and laughter of our friends and family. The dance floor was, was not, you know, there was no room on the dance floor. There was no wiggle room. It was just, I remember my dad just cutting rug after rug after rug. You know, my dad standing in the circle of all those on the dance floor just going nuts. I'll never forget those moves. Just our closest friends eating and laughing and talking and being in communion with one another. God says, he says, that's what heaven is going to be like. That sort of feast, that sort of celebration, that's what the kingdom of God is like, that kind of joy and celebration. 
And every time, we ought to be reminded of this, every time that somebody gets married, every time that, that we are a part of the celebratory reception of a newly wed couple, it's like having a foretaste of heaven. That's what it's going to be like. That's what it's going to be like when you enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, it seems, is totally on point, and it is appropriate for him to perform his first miracle at a wedding. I mean, he starts with the, the end in mind. He, he has something to say about the kingdom of God is that this ministry in his life, where it's all going, it's going toward this great biblical motif of, of this wedding banquet, this, this eschatological feast with God. It's going toward joy and celebration to the union between God and God's people. But the thing about Jewish weddings in the first century is that they required attendees to be uh, ritually pure in order to participate in them. See, the ritual of purification was strictly restricted within the, the first five books of the Bible, within the law or the Torah, you'll sometimes hear us refer to. And this was not water that was used for cleansing. Rather, it was, it was water as a sign of, of spiritual purification and preparation for worship. And the Torah declared that anyone who needed to get clean by ritual cleansing in or, was, was necessary in order to get close to God. And so if you were going to, to go close to God in worship, you needed to be ritually and religiously pure. And what we discover in, in some writings in the Talmud that, that, that you actually only needed about a cup of water in order to become ritually pure. But here in our story, in, in the text that we we read together, there are six containers of water, each containing 20 to 30 gallons of water. This is well, well, well over 100 gallons of water. And weddings then, as they are now, are worship services. This is why if you've been to a Christian wedding, there's prayer and an invocation that God would be present. There's uh, you know, the, the scripture reading and, and a brief sermon, you know, that sometimes we pastors try to keep as short as possible for everybody's sake. We will serve communion or sometimes there are songs that are sung and benedictions that are given to those who have gathered together because a wedding in our tradition is a worship service. And in order in the first century to participate in worship, you had to be ritually pure. Guests needed to be ritually pure. Now follow me here. This is going to take a little bit of, 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 of uh, listen to my logic here, I guess. But if the wedding feast in the biblical sense is the kingdom of God, and one needs to be purified to enter it, what Jesus is teaching here is how one can enter the kingdom of God. The meaning of the story is not that Jesus took plain water and turned it into delightful wine. The issue here is of purification. It is the making oneself right before God, making oneself right so that you could be close or approach God. The, the fancy theological word that we use to describe this cleansing is justification. How does one get close to God? Jesus has in this story. He's transferred us 
from one means of getting close to God, ritual purification, to himself. He has become, in this story, the new path to God and to God's kingdom. If we get too focused on the miracle, we miss the fact that John simply calls the miracle a sign. A sign is is trying to point us to something other than itself. Uh, If we get too fixated on signs, we lose what it is that we're actually searching for. And if we get too fixated on the miracle, we will fail to see that the event John is trying to draw our attention to, that Jesus is trying to draw our attention to, is something other than the, quote, supernatural. It is that Jesus is the one who can make us fit before God. That Jesus is the one who allows us to enter into the kingdom of God, who can make us right with God, who could bring us close to God. And this is why we would do well as Christians in the 21st century to heed the words of Jesus' mother when she tells the servants in the story, do whatever he tells you to do. Whatever Jesus says to do, you ought to do that thing, servants. We would do well to, to listen to these words of Jesus, his words today, to listen and obey. Jesus' commands, his teaching, his His parables, His words, they are the way into the kingdom of God. They are the way by which we become close to God. Not only does Jesus cleanse us, He leads us into the joyous celebration that can only come from those who enter into His kingdom. Now, to be sure, Jesus says some really difficult things at times. Sometimes he, he says things and instructs his disciples to do things that don't readily bring to mind the idea or the emotions of joy and celebration and fun and enthusiasm. He says things like, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Forgive 70 times, seven times. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. Mary, the mother of Jesus, only appears in John's Gospels two times. Here, uh, first, at the wedding at his first miracle in Cana of Galilee, and the second time that she appears is at the foot of Jesus' cross as she watches him hang to his death. And what's interesting, if, if you consider, like, if Jesus' ministry has, from its very beginning, the idea that, that where this is all going is the heavenly banquet, the wedding banquet with God. Like, why, why does it end up on a cross? Why is Mary here at the beginning thinking that this is going to go in, in one direction and it feels like it ends up going in a different direction? Now, I'm no wine connoisseur, like a good Nazarene pastor, Um, But I've read and heard a a number of things about wine in my days. My dad is kind of a wine connoisseur, if you will. But what's interesting about the wine-making process is that from all accounts, the best kinds of wines are made from grapes that have endured a great and tremendous amount of stress. 
As I heard one person put it, uh, great wines are made from stressed vines. You see, the proper soil for vineyards to grow grapes that are going to produce great wine are often not the kinds of soil that you think of, that fertile, nutrient-rich kind of soil. It's, it's rocky soil. It's hard soil that vines do well in. Grapes need to be grown in places where, where the climate isn't you know, too temperate. It, it needs to get hot and it needs to get cold. It has to experience the range of the environment. They aren't seeking, you know, like us, to just be room temperature all of the time. And the science behind all this is quite fascinating if you were ever to read into it. But the point is that stress and difficulty for, as experienced by the vines, actually produces the most delightful grapes that produce the most sweet tasting wine. And it all seems so counterintuitive. How can hardship and difficulty and, and suffering and stress produce something sweet? But it's not just true of grapes and vineyards and wine. This, this principle is actually true of faith. I don't think that Jesus had the winemaking process in mind when he performed his first miracle, but there is little doubt that, that perseverance in the face of hardship and difficulty is essential to the New Testament writers when they teach on faith. Paul writes it this way. He says, We also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. The author of Hebrews writes it this way, says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote it this way. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The witness of the New Testament writers is this, that faith is made complete by the hardship of the cross of Christ Jesus. Can I be honest with you, church, for a moment? <laughs> I'm so tired of COVID. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Amen. I'm sitting here in our, the original sanctuary of our church, my youth room, and I'm reminded that I, once again, I'm preaching to a camera, which is my least favorite thing in the whole world. But I've been telling people lately, I just cannot wait till we get to that point in time, hopefully in the nearish future, where I can have more than a two-minute conversation with somebody without having to talk about COVID and what's going on and who's got it and who doesn't have it and all the, the, the craziness that's surrounding this particular moment. And as I talk to people in our church, I know that I am not alone. And after 
frankly, two years of this, almost two years of this, it's, it's exhausting. It's tiring. And there are, there are some of us who, over these past two years, have experienced real difficulty. Uh, financial stress and concerns, just familial and relational dynamics that have increased their tension. It's been a really difficult season. But the call to the church, as I was reading this, this text this week, the call to the church in such, such times as this is not not merely just to sort of hold on for dear life, right? Now the call isn't just to like, just get through, through this, this season life and somehow hope that it, it turns to something a little bit more normal feeling or easier. It's not the endurance that the scriptures are talking about and it's not the endurance that I think the New Testament writers want to, to teach our church about this week. The endurance is to continue to do what Jesus did, or to do what Jesus calls us to do, uh, even when it's difficult, even when it comes with hardship, even when it's really inconvenient, even when there's an element of suffering, even when it means that we have to carry our crosses. This is the way of the kingdom of God. And it can be difficult, as difficult as carrying our crosses daily, but what it will produce in us and what it will produce in you, faithfulness in the midst of hardship, will be the life of the Christian person. And one of the things, I don't know if you caught this in the story as well, that Jesus writes, or that John writes to us, he says, the chief steward tastes the wine and notices that it's the sweetest of all wines. In many ways, the chief steward is a, is a wonderful representative of what ought to happen in our world as, as they interact with Christian people. They ought to experience the sweetness of our lives and be so curious to know, I don't know where you got this from, but man, this is really sweet. I want to know a little bit more about the source of that wine. May our lives be that palatable and that attractive to the world around us. May it be so in our church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.